the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I was joined in studio by AIB Chief Executive Bernard Byrne. Bailed out by the state to the tune of €21 billion Euro at the height of the crash, AIB has since returned to profit, restored its dividend payment, returned to the main stock markets in Dublin and London and paid back about €11 billion Euro to the state. Bernard Byrne joined AAB eight and a half years ago from ESP, taking over as chief executive in 2015 after David Duffy left the bank. In this interview, he talks about housing and rip-off mortgage rates, Brexit, bankers' pay and bonuses, trust issues in financial services, and when taxpayers can expect to get all of their bailout money back. Bernard Byrne, uh, welcome to studio. We might just start maybe uh, and talk about the current state of the economy and AIB's business. Um, how are things looking from your point of view? I think uh, in general what I'd say is the economy is looking pretty good at this stage. Um, now, that average statement um, hides some issues that obviously are lying beneath it, so we can talk about those. Um, but in overall terms, you can see projections across the board for the year have been lifted up at this stage by up to 3% in terms of GDP estimates. Um, and that is representative, I think, of where underlying activity is. Underlying activity is clearly very strong mm. and we can see that from our consumer base and we can see it from the business base in general. Yeah, tell us how this is reflected in, in AIB's performance. Yeah. Well, you can generally see that the consumer is quite confident um, at this stage. Um, obviously, some of the problems that exist, and we all know them around the housing issue, um, are actually preventing some of that manifesting in the form of new housing or mortgage activity because there's just that shortage of supply. And while that is being addressed in terms of new supply coming on, it's coming on quite slowly relative to where the demand is. So one of the things that we all see, obviously, is mm. rents are high um, because the consumers are out there, they have strong affordability, and there's a shortage of property. So rents are high. On the other side, you can see it for SMEs, and particularly in the larger urban areas, restaurants, hotels, um, pubs, any leisure activity, all those industries are doing well. Um, and you can see it's not just Dublin, where Dublin is obviously very strong, but all the other major urban and indeed tourist destinations have done pretty well so far this summer. Areas which are struggling, though, and this is more a secular trend across uh, rather than being um, a, a, an Irish issue, things like retail. So it is clear that the world that we're in, the internet-based world and the online shopping world is having an impact on many of the retailers and so notwithstanding the strength of the economy, um, traditional retailers are struggling. So, you know, there, there is always going to be some segments that are suffering, notwithstanding mm. the general rising tide. The tide is definitely very strong. Employment levels are very strong. The growth in employment, I was looking at it there not that long ago. It's interesting if you go back to 2013 and where we are now, there's effectively a one-sixth uplift in the number of people in employment. Um, so it's not just that the unemployment rate is falling, but actually the number of people in the workforce has expanded quite significantly. And we have an extra, you know, several hundred thousand jobs relative to our expectation. And I think when you look at the forecasts at this stage, people are ticking up already where 2018 is going to, sorry, 2019 is going mm -hmm. to be and how quickly we'll get to this full employment rate of less than 5%. I think it, it's within 12 months. And in terms of mortgages, I mean, what's your expectation in terms of level of mortgages you'll do? Because you're the biggest lender in the market, aren't you, in terms of home loans? Yeah, so we have the largest share of, of um, origination in, in mortgages, as you say. Um, the market expectation, uh, last year was 7.3 billion market in terms of new mortgages. The expectation was it would go to about 9 billion. That's a consensus number across most of the, the houses. I think that'll be slightly under threat. 
Um, it may not re- quite reach nine billion at this stage. Um, I think the medium term position, on the other hand, has probably been uplifted in terms of people's expectations that rather than being a 10 to 12 billion market in the medium term, I think it's probably closer to a 15 billion type market. So um, that's in a three to four year basis. So so in three to four years, it could be worth 15 billion. The total market in terms of new business origination. Now, it's it's useful to put that in context of history. Um, at its peak, and we all know the peak was, was something we don't want to get back to, it was 40 billion per annum. So the market was 40 billion per annum in terms of new origination. That was unnatural, of course. Yeah. That was unnatural. I think 15, um, given where we're at, and that's based on two things. One is the estimate that the annual new build required is about thirty to 35,000 homes. And there's probably going to be a pent-up demand of in the region of 50,000 units in addition to that. So that'll cause the supply-demand piece to rise in the sort of three, four, five, six-year period beyond that 30, 35,000 number. So that'll drive a bit more activity. So let's say it gets close to 9 billion this year. What share of the market will you guys have? Um, well, we, we've said that um, one of our objectives is not to be driven by a particular market share. The last time we reported a market share, it was it was about 32%, um, which was in our um, half-year numbers. And I think what we've said is we, we would expect, given our position across the market, to maintain a number in the 30s but we're not going to be driven in the short term by driving to okay. any particular... But you're doing market. roughly one in three mortgages. You're doing roughly yeah. one in three mortgages. So that would be about three billion on, on your part. Why won't it reach the nine billion? You say you, you don't expect it to quite reach the nine billion. Why? Um, I think there's a couple of issues playing out. Firstly, the supply is probably a little bit slower coming on. And secondly, um, the macro potential rules from the central bank uh, perspective are working in the sense of... Um, one of their objectives was obviously to make sure that in price inflation on housing didn't run wild while the supply was too short. So we've, we've, we've covered this point in the Oireachtas a couple of times, that it's a sensible strategy to re- reduce the number of mortgage-ready customers when there aren't properties available because it just drives up pricing. So I think that exemption limit and how long it takes for people to actually close out a mortgage means that actually it's, it's quite tricky to get mortgages into people's hands and close the property quickly because it's an annual, it's an annual restriction. And you can't run foul of it. If you do, you've breached a regulatory issue. So uh, I think one of the things that's talked about is um, if, as the central bank reviews those, can you get to the point of making them a rolling average? Um, because it can take people a long time to close a property. Individual banks have given the exemptions out maybe six, nine months ago, but they haven't closed. So they can't give new exemptions out. And in order to capture the properties that are out there, um, sometimes people need them. So I think any miss is going to be very modest. Um, so you're still going to be seeing strong double-digit growth and the momentum is all there. So I think it's only a timing issue rather than... And the exemptions you're, you're talking about are exemptions to the rules whereby, let's say, first-time buyers need to have a 10% deposit and I think second and subsequent buyers need to have 20% roughly Yeah, I think the main restriction is on the other one, which is on the loan-to-income. So it's... Oh, it's three and a half times. It's three and a half times. So, so that's a very, very strong affordability, three and a half times relative to all other marketplaces. So, you know, it's an easy enough exemption to give to people but you have to have the capacity. And with with the long period of time, people have a mortgage pool for 12 months now, mm. which is to help them. But if they don't close the property, the exemptions run out pretty quickly. Yeah, right. Okay. So are your exemptions gone for this year? No, we, we, we try and manage it on a staged basis, but it does mean that you it's hard to do because, because of that time lapse piece. Um, you're still being accused of rip-off mortgage rates, well, at least we, in the Eurozone? Um, well, if you look at the Eurozone averages, um, that isn't true. Um, so that's the first statement. Um, and the Eurozone averages that get published show that ourselves, UK, Germany, actually all have pretty much the same. Of course, UK isn't in the Eurozone. 
correct. <laughs> um, but it's often quoted as a marketplace for us. Um, so on average, what you see is that the total book pricing is pretty similar in pretty much all marketplaces. Where the commentary is made is about front book pricing. Um, and we as a bank have, have a policy of front and back book pricing being the same. So we've effectively reduced our pricing on the back book for standard variable rate mortgages to the same level as the attractive. Okay, most of our listeners won't have a clue what you're talking about in terms of front book and back sure, book. Okay. Explain that to us. So, so what we're, we try and do is to make sure that the rate we attract a new mortgage customer mm. is the exact same as the rate that all existing customers get. So when we reduce the price, and we've done this a number of times for new customers, we give that benefit to the back book straight away. So those customers on standard variable rates they don't need to worry as to whether they've got the best price from AIB because our price in the market today to attract a new customer is the same as the one we give to our existing customers. And the variable is kind of the, the focus of your lending the efforts variable at AIB. Because that it? is the way you can maintain that, what we sort of think is a fair mortgage. And mm. um, What you see in other marketplaces is a teaser rate price or teaser rate product. So a front book price, which basically says, come with us, have a one-year product at this very low rate, and then you revert to a different rate. Mm-hmm. So, so some of your rivals are using that in this market. I mean, Ulster Bank, I think they're down to 2.3%. Yeah, so what we have said is we feel that the fairer mortgage is the one that gives people a sense as to where they're going to be in the long term. And front book and back book pricing being the same is a good strategy. Different yeah. people have different views. That's our strategy. And that's how we've committed to All right. and your benefit. Your standard variable rate at the minute? Uh, 3.15. 3.15. All right. But it is, I mean, if you take the Eurozone average, it is still yeah. higher. I mean, you've been called out on this, not just you, but do other Irish banks as sure. well have been called out on this in front of the Oireachtas? Well, and the point is, that is factually not true. Uh, because if you look at the averages, the averages are the same across markets. The front book pricing is where we are higher because we're not offering this teaser rate product into the marketplace. So on a front book basis, it's true, yeah. but not on an average basis. There are other issues, of course, that do play out, which are, you know, the Irish market is not the same as other marketplaces. And the issues associated with the exercise of security are well known in the Irish market. I, it's a very, very difficult market if there is a false lapse. Um, whereas other marketplaces, it's a 30 to 60 day process at the most extreme in Scandinavian countries. The second point is around the whole um, conduct and consumer protection code in terms of the level of, of interaction we have with customers is much higher. So the customer protection is stronger. That costs. Um, and fundamentally, these are some of the issues and the history piece. So the history of loss in Ireland is obviously very strong. So the amount of capital Irish banks must hold against mortgages is much higher than the European average. Yeah. And that's set by this European Central Bank. So there are a number of characteristics which are different in the Irish market. Um, and they explain some of these issues. People's commercial strategies explain some of these issues. Um, and I think sometimes it's a little unfortunate that we go for the front book piece without actually thinking of the majority of customers who have backbook mortgages. Okay, now you are offering teaser rates to uh, EBS, uh, for example, aren't you? And uh, you're offering cash back um, to people who uh, take out their mortgages with EBS, whether um, they're a new customer or whether they're switching from uh, another bank. And, and this has irked a lot of the uh, politicians. They feel that you should do away with all of these uh, teaser rates and just have a just have a, a you know a, a standard easily to, easy to understand rate uh, for everybody whether it's variable or it's fixed. Yeah. So I, I think what we've said is we believe that the AIB offering, which is the core offering and the majority of the business we do, is 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 the offering we believe most strongly in. But we are in a competitive marketplace, and other people are offering other off- opportunities in terms of this the cashback piece and in terms of fixed rate short term pricing. So that's a competitive position. We have it in the marketplace under the EBS brand. Um, and that is why we have it is because others have this offering in the marketplace. And I think it's, it's, it's a fair point if you think back to one of the core issues on any of these 
financial developments over time in marketplaces, everyone has to look at their market position. And it is up to regulators and others to determine whether the practice that's in the market is the right practice or the wrong practice. Because mm. people have to defend their market well, share. what's your view? Uh, well, I've, I, our view is very clear that a, the AIB offering, which effectively tries to offer everyone front and back book pricing on the same basis and a long-term position, is the one we believe is the most fair. Would you like to see all these teasers gone, all of these sort of promotional offers, shall we call them, uh, eliminated from the market? I, I, I think... You know, it's not my job to eliminate choice in the marketplace, but I think it is important that people really understand what they're getting into. And I think sometimes the allure of these products can be quite strong because it looks good in the short term, but it doesn't necessarily work in the long term. So I think they need to be really well explained for people to understand what they're getting into. In some circumstances, it may make sense for somebody to do it. So it's not my job to say whether it is or isn't. But if we'd only one offering, it'd be the offering that we're effectively fronting in AIB. Right. Okay. Um, let's just talk about AIB in terms of the stock market because uh, obviously that's a measure of how the business is performing and your share price has been down 20% year to date. And um, Now, uh, not all down to the AIB performance, I'm sure, because stock markets have had a bit of a, a wobble of late. The Isaac earlier this week hit a two-year low. Um, but you're back around the IPO price. Uh, so why is that? I mean, and what can you do to influence it? So... The, the first point, which is the one you've made already, is that this is across the board in terms of an equity position at this stage. So there's been a very significant sell-off in equities over the last while. And the banking sector, and in particular European banking sector, has actually come off its sort of highs of probably six, nine months ago um, quite significantly this year. Um, and on a relative valuation basis, if you look at AIB across our peer set, we're actually still performing reasonably well. And we're in the uh, sort of upper tier of performance on a book value or an EPS basis. Um, the issue really is that um, macro on a macro level, investors are nervous about a number of things. And in the banking sector, in European banking sector, the Italian position is not helpful. Brexit is not helpful. Um, and a general sense that because of these issues and other issues, the inflationary trade, which a lot of US investors have bought into, i.e. interest rates in Europe, will start to rise. And a rising yield curve makes banking generally as a sector attractive, they now believe that has moved out in time. And the relative trade, i.e. US banks, is quite attractive because interest rates in the US are now rising. So over the last 12 months, what's happened is the relative positioning of European banking and US banking has changed. US banking, if you look at the valuations, they're probably trading about one and a half times book, whereas European banks on average are trading at or just below book value. Um, and that's really where we're at. So that is the main secular trend that's taken place is that change in perception around US and European banks. Second thing that's sort of playing out, I think, in the Irish situation is um, is the Brexit issue. That's a particular point around the Irish banks, just a question as to whether that does or doesn't. Um, What's the AIB exposure to Brexit? So we, we kind of think of the exposure in a few ways. One is obviously we have a business in the UK. It's about 10% of our balance sheet. So that's a direct position we have in the UK. So um, it's relatively modest in the scheme of the overall bank. And we have kind of gone to a conservative position on lending into the UK economy right now. Um, the more material thing we think about is obviously the impact on the customer positions and how individual customer segments trade, because that's the majority of our business and obviously the majority of our customers' position when they trade with the UK is the relevant piece. We've already seen the FX, the foreign exchange aspect of that play out, and most customers have been able to wear that at this stage. 
Um, the, the core issue, of course, is will trade restrictions in the form of tariff or other barriers prevent certain sectors trading into those marketplaces? Our general assessment, and I'll give you our assessment and then maybe link it back into where the central bank comment on this. Our assessment is that, you know, most sectors where they are very heavily exposed have either thought about it or else relatively lowly invested sector. So beef farming, for example, um, you're, the average beef farmer is actually quite a small farmer. It's part-time enough a lot of times. And they're not heavily invested, so they don't have significant debt or capital mm. decisions. So, yes, the UK is the most important market, but they're not looking at a heavily leveraged business. The dairy sector is obviously different, but the dairy sector has the benefit of large co-ops and large um, multinational companies sitting on top of those who actually think about the offtake markets on behalf of the underlying dairy farmers. So they're quite advanced in terms of their thinking about how they deal with the dislocation in the UK. So dairy farmers on average have the benefit of somebody else thinking about those things. And I think a number of the, the government initiatives around Board B, etc., are actually very successful in thinking about alternative marketplaces. So those sectors are good. I think there is a concern that exists that those who aren't so heavily exposed but will find some impact are probably not thinking about Brexit quite enough. Um, to be honest, it's understandable at one level because nobody can describe exactly what it's going to be. Mm. So they go, I don't have enough time to think about something you can't tell me. Come back to me when I know. Um, we have 25 Brexit advisors around the country trying to talk to businesses and it depends, as I say, where they're, where they're at as to the level of engagement. Um, government is obviously putting in quite an initiative at this stage to try and raise awareness around the availability of funds to invest and the availability of market advice and what could happen. But if you go back and look at the macro point, I think the central bank um, perspectives on this, depending on whether it's a very hard Brexit or some sort of managed Brexit, um, and I think the recent one, I think it was actually in your fine publication, <laughs> um, talked about uh, 1.5 or 1.7% reduction in GDP over a five-year period. I always say, well, look at that in context. We upgraded the estimate for GDP this year by 3%. Mm. Um, so it, it is not that significant for an economy that is growing at the rate we're growing. So I think in overall terms, so long as there's a managed Brexit, I think it'll be okay. That's not to say certain sectors won't have more to do. Of course they will. I think the only issue becomes this unmanaged or disorderly Brexit, sure. which is hard to call. Just going back to your share price, because you floated in the first half of last year at 4.40 right. uh, per share, and the state uh, effectively sold off, what, about 28% of its uh, holding. So it's back down to 71%. The, the shares went up to about 5.80 or uh, thereabouts. Uh, we're now back down towards uh, the very close to the IPO price. So has the state missed the boat in terms of selling uh, an additional stake in AIB. And I think you were uh, quoted last December as saying, look, the markets are what the markets are. When the markets are good, you should look at, uh, at you know, making hay while the sun shines uh, because it might not always be there. So ultimately, any sell down is obviously an, an issue for government and for the minister of the time. Um, the position, and it's in the general context of markets, which is markets move around. Um, they don't always represent the fundamental valuation of a business. They represent a whole series of things, one of which is to do with the business, many of which are to do with the general perspective investors have about markets. So, you know, my overall commentary would always be the same, which is if you believe that markets are reasonably strong, that's a good opportunity mm. because at some point in time they'll ebb, but they will come back again. Mm. Um, so right now we're obviously in a weak part for the reasons we've talked about, where for a series of reasons investors are risk off in Europe and risk off in banking. But those issues will come back. So ultimately, the government needs to decide on a strategy around the sell-down piece. Um, obviously, there was issues around programme for government and commitments around how much could or couldn't be sold. There are political issues. Um, from my point of view, I think 
the statement that the minister has made and we think the government policy is the right one, which is long-term government shouldn't be an owner of the banks. I, don't think, I think everyone wants that separation um, to exist between the state and the banking sector. Um, and I think that's good. So therefore, it's a question of how do you get there? The timing issue is really for government. So when's the next window of opportunity for the government uh, to potentially sell a stake? Is it after the full year results next spring? Yeah, so, so the various windows, um, because obviously the government with its large shareholding is, is somewhat more constrained, um, are generally around the time we come up with a, a market update. So we'd have our Q3 update in the next number of weeks to the marketplace. That probably clears the government again. Given the volatility in the market, that may be unlikely. So then the next one would be around the end of February, early March, when again, our full year results for 2018, as you say. Right. Um, how long do you think before AIB is in majority private ownership? Um well, the, the the way maybe to think about that is there's two parts to the question. The first one is, is there a capacity for AIB to be in private ownership quite quickly? And generally, when I'm asked that question in Oireachtas, et cetera, I say, well, actually, I think the capacity is there. So there's plenty of investor interest. So that could happen reasonably quickly. That's a short-term issue. What do you mean by reasonably quickly? Well, I think, a couple I think, of years? Or? Yeah, it could be a few years. Um, it could, could get there in a quite orderly and managed fashion. There's plenty of examples of... Um, trades taking place in the Dutch market, AVN in the UK with um, Lloyd's, you know, of how those things can happen on a reasonably programmatic basis. But obviously the key issue is, a, is more a policy issue from a government point of view. How long do they want to take? Um, so I think the capacity is there, then effectively it becomes a policy issue from a government point of view. And that is obviously beyond my remit in terms of whether that's a short, medium or long-term play. Now, the other thing that taxpayers want to know is when they're going to get their money back uh, because AIB and EBS got 20, uh, almost €21 billion Euro in bailout funds uh, from uh, the state. And you said at the Dublin Chamber last night, you know, in or around €10 billion has already been handed back uh, to the state in one form or another. Um, I was working out this morning what the value of the residual stake that the state owns in AIB, it's about €8.5 billion. So there's still a significant sort of three three and a half billion shortfall there. So if you look at the, the number in terms of amounts to date, um, it's closer to $11 billion than $10 billion. But the And this is an interesting point because it goes back to valuations. So if the valuation of the state's ownership in January had been done, it was actually significantly appreciably in excess of the total investment. The valuation today is below. So that's how valuation... It's a point-in-time exercise. It's a point-in-time yeah. exercise. So I think the state, as a result of all the exercises that have taken place, the redemption of the historic capital instruments and dividend flows, etc., and the IPO has got to the point where between what it's received and its ownership of what's left and the structure, i.e. a listed company, has the ability to receive the full cash over time, that becomes how important is that? How important psychologically is it to get that number versus what is the market price at any point in time? Mm. Um, you know, sunk costs are sunk. Um, so the question for the state is how quickly does it want to get the cash back? Um, I think the market in general will always be available and receptive. And then it's where is the share price relative to a government perspective. Mm. But all things uh, being equal, um, how long do you reckon before uh, taxpayers are fully repaid? Because Bank of Ireland has repaid its yeah. uh, its bailout money. Well, fundamentally, that's a government issue. So, I mean, the key issue now, the only core asset that is left, obviously, is 71% of AIB. So it's that is literally the question is, when does it sell the 71% and how much does it get for it? And that will determine when and how much it gets. And that obviously isn't a question I can answer at this stage. 
Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, earlier this year, um, AIB put a proposal for to introduce bonuses, long-term incentive, uh, long-term incentive plan. It was shot down in the end. Um, the the government um, couldn't couldn't stomach it uh, at this point in time, at least. What was the thinking behind that? Because uh, bankers' bonuses are a really toxic issue, particularly when a bank like AIB still owes a lot of money um, to taxpayers. So, what was the thinking at AIB behind that? Well, you know. The job isn't always to do what's popular. Um, the job is is to try and position for what the right answer is. So given the conversation we've had so far, which is how do you get to the point of maximising the return on the investment, um, the IPO process was clearly mm. a key part of that. As part of that, the, the board identified very clearly that one of the key risk factors that they saw was the fact that we didn't have market standard remuneration practices and we didn't have retention mechanisms or incentive mechanisms for management and executives. So there's a government uh, salary cap in place and there's no bonuses allowed, essentially. Yeah, so, effect- so it's, it's a government, it's a flat salary piece, there's no variable pay um, and there's no share incentive scheme. And those will be typically in place um, to try and create a lock-in between the management and the new investors. So that risk was identified as part of the IPO um, and as part of the next annual result, which was a commitment the chairman and the board had given, they brought forward a plan to try and create a lock-in mechanism based on aligning the interests of the shareholders, the new shareholders, i.e. those that are going to acquire the bank in the future, um, and the management, which is a fairly typical sort of arrangement. Um, that was not approved, as you said, by, by government. 99.7% of all the other shareholders did approve it. Um, so I think that's a sign that the new investor set finds this something that they want because they want to lock management in and create an aligned incentive mechanism. So to some extent, I think it comes down to this simple policy issue of what is the government's position? Is it owning the bank with a view to maximising value as it sells to a third party or are we still dealing with some of the other legacy issues? So I totally get that bankers aren't popular. I totally get that there's a desire to inflict pain on the system. The question is, what is the best approach to address an issue that is a challenge because we have higher turnover rates and that causes a bit of a drag in terms of investor interest. You know we have had a departure, a reasonably high-profile departure. Quite this recently. is Mark Burke, your CFO. CFO. Yeah. And those yeah. things cause questions in the investors' minds. Did he leave because of pay? I, just, I don't think anyone ever leaves for one individual issue. However... Was it part of have, the reason? If you, well, I'll put it the other way. If you have no basis, including no defined benefit pension, no variable pay, no shares, it's very easy to leave. Um, whereas if those things are in place and create a lock-in mechanism, well, then it's harder to leave. So are you resigned to the fact you're chief executive now for three and a half years, you've been with the bank for about eight and a half years. Are you resigned to the fact that you're probably never going to be paid a bonus uh, during your time at AIB? Karen, I'm always the optimist. Um, so I think the government, obviously, as a result of the, the issue going to them, um, did commit to a pay review mm-hmm. um, to try and take a long-term perspective on what needed to happen next. So I think... I think there is a recognition that something needs to change. However, that's really difficult because the politics and the economics of this don't align. So I think what the minister has done is put in place um, a mechanism to to get some objective thinking on what could be done. That should deliver before the end of the year. 
then what will happen as a result of that is obviously a political issue rather than um, anything I can influence. So we'll have to see where that goes. But there's also a hefty tax uh, on bonuses in, in place. The government imposed one of, what, 80, 89%? Yeah, it's effect, called it 90% in effect. Yeah, so. sure. Now, do you think that anybody in, Oireachtas, in the Oireachtas is really going to vote to remove that, particularly given the, the numbers in the Oireachtas at the minute? We have a minority government. Dennis Nocton uh, has uh, fallen overboard uh, as a minister. So, you know, support levels for the government are very, very, very tight and there wouldn't be much appetite I would have thought on the opposition benches to give bankers uh, bonuses or to remove the imposition of the 89% tax that's already in place Uh, Politics is always tricky Um, it's the art of the possible so everything you've said is is fair in terms of the position that government find themselves in on the other hand uh, it goes back to the issue of what is the objective of government in owning the bank does it wish to maximise its stake from a sell down or not so these are often conflicting issues, and clearly in this case it is a conflicting issue. We don't get to decide what happens, but what we can say is there is a consequence to the fact that we have abnormal positions um, and in a marketplace that's getting towards full employment with lots of interesting financial services businesses coming to Ireland as a result of Brexit, it's a very competitive market. So our job is to point out that there is a consequence to not being normal, it's for others to decide whether it's important enough or not. Okay. How many of the top 200 uh, senior managers have left since the IPO? I think the number we put out was it's a sort of a mid-teens turnover at this stage. Right, okay. Is that worrying? I mean, is that normal or is that I know we, we are su- We are suffering at a slightly higher attrition rate at this stage and that is accelerating. Right, okay. Um, and you just got to live with it? Well, we, we've, we've tried all of the things that were within the control of the board um, at this stage, it's gone into the policy space from a government point of view, and that is what we await. Okay. And in terms of Mark's replacement, would that be an internal or external candidate? We haven't we haven't declared anything in respect to that at this stage. We're we're in discussion internally about the best approach and route to it. Um, you know, it, I think if we can uh, look at an internal option, that's a good thing to do. Recruitment of senior executives into banks, in particular takes a very long time when they come from outside. Um, you have the normal recruitment process, you have normal um, gardening leave, gardening and, leave and then you have an approval process into the regulatory system, which is very long as well. So it can be 18 months um, from a, the start to the end, certainly more than 12, and can be up to 18. So it's a very long-term process. And given the uncertainty on pay, um, mm-hmm. it's not something that I can offer to somebody and say, well, actually, we think we have a market normal or market standard position for this. So... There's a challenge to recruiting externally is all I'm saying. Yeah. How long did you have to wait for your nomination as CEO to be ratified by the regulators? Um, I don't think we declared how long it is, but it takes a while. <laughs> right. OK. Yeah. Um, now, there's a, a series of uh, stress tests, European stress tests uh, coming up. The last time around, I think it was 2016, AIB didn't perform very well. You were at the bottom of the table, uh, towards the bottom of the table at least. Um, how's the bank going to do next time around? Well, what's interesting about that is, is which is the number that people focus on? So the stress tests obviously do a number of things. The first thing they're trying to do is come up with a European normal um, and common approach to stressing the capital adequacy of banks for a big shock. Um, given the history of Ireland, the stress in Ireland is always worse than it is in other jurisdictions, which is a little bit counterintuitive because actually Ireland has probably gone through more change in their systems and therefore the likelihood of the same stress is much lower. Um, the second point is that it talks, it gives two outputs. One is what is your total capital going to be after the stress and then how much of 
your starting capital was reduced to get to that. So in other words, the, the delta or the change as a result of the stress. Um, where we are going to be as a country is because of the way the stress works, we generally have a larger delta, a larger drop. And that is the piece that gets referred to is as the Irish banks did worse because of the size of the drop. However, given the amount of capital we have um, at this stage, where we're mm. effectively close to 18% fully loaded CT1, we will have fairly strong levels of capital even after that stress. How much is that? I mean, in real money, how much is that equate to? It's 13 billion in total capital. That you have to keep as that a we have. No, 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 that we have in total. Yeah. Okay. Um, but what's interesting here, and if I go back, if you look at those stress tests I refer to, when the stress test was first done, um, which was probably three years ago, um, we, we as a bank had a stressed position of minus 3.7%, um, but actually on a fully loaded basis. But that wasn't a number that anyone commented on because it was done on this transitional mm. capital basis, total capital. The next time we did it, we had 4.3% positive. So actually, between the two stress tests, we generated 7 or 8% capital which was number one in European marketplace in terms of the amount of capital generated. It's going to be a very similar exercise again. So what you find is we are generating 200 plus basis points of capital every year from our activities. So we have a very strongly capitalised bank. The issue is when you apply a stress with conservative assumptions, you have a bigger delta, a bigger drop. So our issue is to protect the total capital so that that delta or shock Mm. that comes from the system isn't at the end of the day anything material. So I think you're going to find a similar position, which is the Irish banks will have a bigger drop, but actually the total capital in the Irish banking system is pretty good in general. That's not for everyone. Um, and we will end up in a, in a reasonable position. So will there be headlines out of this uh, the stress test results like there were the last time? And I think part of the problem the last time was the fact that the, the banks and the regulators weren't, weren't communicating with people around this and it came out very late in the day. Uh, I think there have definitely been communication challenges between the banking system and the regulatory disclosure of these items. Um, I think the first time it came out, it was on a Friday of the August bank holiday weekend, which probably wasn't ideal. Um, So the issue of the headlines will be up to you guys. Um, I think the issue of the communication challenge, I think a lot has been learned from that. So I think the regulators are getting better at telling us so we know in advance of the things to be thoughtful about. We won't know the numbers until they're published generally. Um, and I think the conversation we're having is is actually the conversation that can now happen in advance of mm. a stress test so that when they come out, people aren't surprised by the action. And just in terms of Italy and the banks there, is there fears about uh, contagion for for Ireland, for AIB? <clears throat> Again, that, you know, that's a, that's a very big topic that um, I won't say that I have the capability of answering at all. I'd, I'd say um, you can see that there's statements that get made politically in Italy which cause lots of reaction in the marketplace and then they tend to be ameliorated by subsequent action. Uh, The markets have obviously taken a very stark view of the position adopted in that jurisdiction at this stage but we've been through this ourselves um, and lots of examples and comparisons between the Irish situation and the Greek situation. It's easy to have very public and populist statements um, but when you start to implement them in certain countries you really do suffer. I think the Irish model is often held out as one that, you know, actually yeah. was quite successful. So I, I think, you know, the market has, has reacted at this stage and it's a question of waiting to see how it plays out. Now, we're 10 years on from the global financial crash and you've mentioned how the Irish system has uh, changed. A lot of changes have been uh, implemented and a lot of uh, changes have been implemented at AIB. And yet we, we still have this scandal around uh, tracker mortgage rates. Um, and the banks, I think, uh, I think the cost to the banks of this uh, scandal has been about a, a billion euros. Uh, in the case of AB, you took a, an additional 32 million charge in the first half of the year to 
cover refunds and uh, compensation. Um, and you've set aside $262 million since the central bank ordered uh, all of the lenders in the country to review their books back in 2015. And in April, you revealed that the number of customers affected had risen by 1,800 to 5,800. I don't know if that cohort has increased since. But how has it come to pass that 10 years after uh, the crash, we're still dealing with uh, scandals like this? And can you understand why there's such a lack of trust uh, by ordinary people in the banking system? Yeah, well, uh, so there's, there's a few really interesting points there. The, the first one is obviously on the whole tracker issue itself. Um, and you've, you've, heard, you've heard us talk about this before. I think the, the reason the tracker issue arose uh, was, had its, its heart associated with the financial crisis that you referred to and the withdrawal of a tracker product, which seemed a natural um, option at the time to take a product out of the market that no longer had a reference rate. The problem was there wasn't further thinking done on the consequence of people in terms of further positioning of that. Um, So we we haven't found, I haven't found um, any indications of malintent as a result of that, but we've definitely made a lot of mistakes as an organisation in understanding the long-term implications of this. The main reason, and it's not just Ireland, I mean, every jurisdiction has had issues, different issues. And the main problem is banking is a very long-term issue. So a mortgage is a 30-year product. So if you make any mistake at any point in time and get it wrong, place. other industries don't have this. You know, so, so the main surprise factor associated with financial services is generally to do with the duration of the product rather than and how long it needs to be tracked and monitored and the changes that take place in the middle. And systems weren't up to that. Plus, standards have changed. I mean, the perception as to what is fair now is very different than what was fair 10 years ago. And that's a good thing, but it does have consequence. So if you take it that the tracker issue has been running for a very long time and a very thorough, detailed investigation, and um, as you mentioned, um, the central bank, I think, have been in very recently talking about the fact that most of the lenders are through the process in terms of the formal part of the process in terms of issuing repayments, and that's the position we're in. Uh, we're, we're basically through that part of the process, but there is always appeals process but there's lots of judgments involved. So it is not a vanilla issue. There's lots of judgments involved. And if you look at some of the files associated with this, you end up with, you know, thousands of pieces of documentation. And the question is, did that piece of documentation change somebody's entitlement or right? It's a good process to go through. It shows a lot of issues. It also goes back to the point about simplicity of products. You know, have a nice, simple product, make it simple for the customer to understand, and then it'll be much more, much more robust. Um, the issue of trust, though, is, is, is a really interesting one. So I get totally why um, that, that is true. But to be honest, and I think it's really important, every institution has trust issues. The reputation of the media industry is in the same place as the reputation of the banking industry is the same place as government is in the same place as industry. We all have an issue. Mm, I'm not sure about that now. Well, if you, OK, let's take the US. So we'll move away from Ireland. All the stats show that that's actually true. Um, What's that today's now? These are cu- customer perception on trust in various institutions. Yeah. Okay, well, let's see with Ireland, though. Let's forget the US because we have a Trump factor in all of that. Oh, so no, maybe, no, that's, maybe, that's, maybe, that's, maybe that's squaring the pitch. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. But uh, let, let's uh, stick with Ireland. What stats are showing that uh, people uh, don't trust? Our trust uh, in the media is at the same level as trust in the banks. I'd say trust in all institutional sectors is very low at this point in time. Mm. Do you not accept that? Uh, well, I'm not sure I would, no, because I don't know what uh, reference okay. base you're using. Uh, whose stats are these? Well, the, the, it's just the stuff I read um, that, that basically talk about trust in, in mm. sectors across the board um, is very low. 
I accept totally the banks have a huge trust issue, mm. but I think it is important that we generally accept that large institutional players across all jurisdictions, all democracies, have a lack of trust. Yeah, sure. And look, I mean, people yeah. might be, uh, you know, they might be ticked off with the media uh, from time yeah. to time for our coverage of this, that or the other, but that doesn't really affect their, their lives in a monetary uh, way in, in, in sure. the same way um, that yeah. banking does. Yeah. If you lose your house, I mean, you know, if you don't like something that's written in the newspaper, you can throw it in the bin. Yeah. But uh, if the bank uh, is trying to repossess your house, that's a far more meaningful life event for you. Totally agree with you. So this is why we're launching our, and have changed our positioning around our sustainability agenda, because we know we need to have a very fair proposition for all our key stakeholders over the lifetime of our, our position with those customers. So what we've done is we've thought about um, how we go about positioning the business. And fundamentally, it's about being very, very engaged with all of the key stakeholders for our business. So for us, we've gone through the work and that's five of them. So it's obviously our customers, obviously our staff, obviously the regulators, obviously government and society as a broad stakeholder, so government representing society um, and our investors. They're the key stakeholder sets that ultimately will determine whether in 10 years' time or 15 years' time, the bank um, is a viable and sustainable entity or not. Um, and we haven't been proactive enough about that, um, and the banks have been too short-term mm. in their thinking, um, and that short-term thinking has resulted in um, the positions that we're talking about where sometimes you get it wrong. Um, now, we will always be in a position where sometimes you get it wrong, and we have to be open enough to always say that's true. Um, but if we take this longer-term perspective and try and think about the core issues from the customer in the long-term for government and society in the long term and share the value that is created through the banking sector over time back into those customer bases and those stakeholders, then we think we create a more sustainable bank. So we think it's part of our culture. It has to be about taking a long-term view of being better in 10 years than we are today, not just better in one year than we are today. The 262 million costs that you've already booked in relation to the mortgage tracker scandal, uh, is that the sum total or will there be more costs to come? Well, I, th I mean, the total we've booked is the total based on what we know at this point in time. Um, if anything further arises, then we have to deal with that. Um, but we don't know anything further at this point. Right. But is it your expectation that you might have to add to that? No, because if we did, if it was the expectation we'd have had to add yeah. to it. But based on what we know, that's what it is. But, as I say, there's an appeals process and there's yeah. the possibility of this running for a period of time as a result of that. Do you enjoy the job? Because, um, you, I mean, bankers are hate figures in this uh, society to a lot of people and that can't be easy to yeah. deal with. I mean, do you, get a, do you get any abuse? Do you get any sort of hate mail or do you get people coming up to you in the street and uh, having a go? Or? I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't answer that question in case it encourages the wrong behaviour. Uh, what <laughs> Richie Boucher, I, I, I did an interview with yes. Richie Boucher when he was just about to leave uh, Bank of Ireland yeah. and, you know, he said he had received hate mail. He'd had people calling to his front door. Yeah. So I, I think the... You know, I joined the bank in 2010, um, which was obviously a joined banking in 2010, which was obviously a hard time um, and a difficult time in terms of where the industry was. I think there was a huge amount of learning done by the industry from 2010 through to well, still learning, um, but certainly the period 2013, 2014, and I think there was an awful lot of very understandable um, emotion um, associated with the role the banks had played in getting to that position. Um, I always try to adopt a very open approach of saying, "Listen, we've." got loads of things wrong um, so we have to try and figure out what we do to get it right um, most people that I've found you know we, we have very active conversations sometimes I say things that can agitate people sometimes but I'm always trying to be pretty open about it and say listen we need to have this conversation we need to figure out what the answer is around sometimes difficult things like you know 
home loans, etc. How do you progress that? Trackers, how do you progress that? There's no point in pretending the issue doesn't exist. Let's try and move on. So it's a challenging job. Um, we have a lot of stakeholders and we have a lot of people who have very clear views of what the answer is. And, and often those answers don't align. Um, so that is a challenge. Um, but we have managed to do something um, in, in the bank in terms of turning it from a really, really difficult position to a much more positive position. And we have a view that we can continue to do that. So it's very rewarding and positive from that point of view that you don't often get to do something that was kind of broken um, and get to the point where actually it's in a much different place at this stage. So that's very rewarding, but there are challenges. So it's 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 like that, you know, the, the, the how do you, what's the average temperature? Well, if you, half your body's in the fridge and half your body's in the oven, on average, it's fine. I think on average, um, I enjoy my job the same way I enjoyed a different job 10 years ago. The highlights are very high, but the low lights are very low. So um, I think it's, on average, um, it's just, uh, it's a job of extremes. Right. How would you describe your leadership style? Um, hopefully, uh, I would say it's engaging. It's tried to be very authentic. Um, it is to show uh, people that we have a very clear view of where we're trying to go. Um, to make sure that that view is consulted as widely as possible. And then it's pretty decisive as to where we're going once we've had the opportunity to have all the conversation views and then to progress, uh, you know, fairly firmly with what we're trying to do at that stage. Um, we, we've done a lot of work with staff engagement in the business in 2013. Uh, we brought Gallup in to do an iConnect survey um, and we found that uh, for every one engaged employee we had, we had three disengaged employees. That is not where you want to start. Mm. Uh, we were on the fifth percentile. And that's a bad percentile, not a good percentile. Um, we're now six years on from that. The last formal survey, um, we got to the point where we had eight engaged employees for every one disengaged employee. So a massive turnaround and we've moved to the 62nd percentile globally. Um, we're just finished another one. And my hope is that we'll get to the 70th percentile, which means we're in the mid-teens in terms of engaged employees. That will put us in a really strong position, not just nationally, but um, in the European context. And financial services struggles with this. So I think what we've managed to do is create a, quite an open dialogue in the business. People know what's happening. And the key issue is for people, do you know what's happening? And can I relate to the... I may not agree with it, but at least I've had a chance to express my view. So that's the style, hopefully. Um, and to date, uh, we've managed to you know, achieve a reasonable amount. And how do you motivate people in the circumstances where, let's say, trust in banking is low and you have a tracker mortgage scandal and uh, repossessions and all, mortgage arrears and all of that, uh, and then you've got the pay issue as well? There's probably some people in the bank who feel they should be paid more or they should be getting a bonus because if they're working somewhere else, they'd get a bonus, uh, etc. How do you motivate staff in those circumstances? Well, one is the engagement piece to make sure that everyone... I mean, people don't just move for money, as you know. I mean, it's a, it's a key element, mm. but there's many other elements. So we try and create an environment where... Staff feel comfortable where they're at. The engagement servers I've talked about are important from that point of view. Um, we also try and make sure we have a very modern work environment. So we've gone through a major change program to try and reposition the entire property estate to represent a new way of working rather than the tradition and legacy of the bank. And we focus on our customers very heavily. So um, that focus on customers has been hugely helpful in terms of giving all staff, no matter where they work in the bank, a focal point of why they need to do things differently. So... Banks could be historically quite bureaucratic. So my department reported to this department, to this department. That isn't that engaging. If you try and cut out as many of those layers as possible and point out the customer effect all the way through, then you can achieve a lot. And what we have found is we study reputation surveys. We do, we do track our reputation quite closely. Uh, with our customers, our reputation is actually quite good. Uh, and that's the thing we can really move. 
because they interact with us, they see us, they experience it. And interesting, in particular, with the twenty, with the sort of fifteen to thirty-five cohort, our brand resonates very strongly. We're seen as strong or very strong in terms of their perception as to our modernism and where we're at. Older cohorts, much harder because of the legacy of the bank, where AIB is, history, historical issues, dirt, all those things. They weigh heavily on people, particularly if you're not customers and you've no experience. So we have to accept that. Um, Our job is to move the customer position as much as possible, given that we have a very large customer base. That has a positive effect in terms of spreading out. Um, And that is the piece that really, I think, is most helpful in terms of getting our staff engaged, is that they get closer and closer to seeing that direct movement year on year, in terms of improving the position. Um, let's just, just a couple of more questions uh, before we finish. Um, one, how do you see the market uh, developing? We've, uh, yourselves and Bank of Ireland, very big players in the market, and then we've got Ulster Bank, Permanent TSB, and uh, KBC. There's been a lot of talk of consolidation within those players, and there's been talk recently of other players coming into the market. market. Finance Ireland have said, Billy Kane's company have said, they're going to come into the market. On Post has uh, said it's interested in coming into the market. Credit unions want to do more mortgage lending, uh, etc. So it sounds like it might become a more competitive mm-hmm. space. What's your view on that? Well, as you say, all of those people have announced, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, um, intentions or plans to do something. Um, so that's fine. Um, our view is that we already had a strategy for this. And we kind of knew this was going to be uh, something that might happen. So our very clear focus on, on the customer and our very clear focus on improving. So exactly on mortgages, um, one of the key things is convenience. So it really matters to the customer. How quickly can I get from thinking I want a home to actually having a mortgage approval? Uh, We're in trial in uh, two of our 19 regions at this stage on our new mortgage experience program, which we've been working on for about 18 months. And effectively, our target is to get to a 45-minute approval. Um, That is leading everywhere. Um, At this stage, we're about an hour in those two regions, and we're approving about 6 out of 10. Um, Our standard is to get to 7 out of 10. You won't get the full thing because there's always more complex issues. And we will roll that out across the board in the first quarter of next year. Of course, approval is one thing. Drawdown is the other. How long... Well, the first trauma for people is getting the approval, though. Um, and then I fully accept the piece about drawdown. So we have a mortgage app. Um, mm-hmm. So once you are with us, um, you effectively have an assigned centre of expertise to handle everything associated with your mortgage, whether you need advice on getting uh, evaluation, whether you need to find out where it is in the legal process. The mortgage app will effectively give you everything you need to know and a direct contact centre fully available uh, with an expert all the way through. Because customers are always dropping off and find, I don't know where I'm at. Mm. And the system in Ireland is, another part of the complexity of Ireland is it's quite manual. You know, the land registry process is quite manual. The, mm. Everything is manual. So people need a lot of help. So we focused in very heavily on doing that. It's going to be really hard for some of the other players um, to provide that level of convenience and support. So our job is the best, most efficient, most supportive customer experience with a long-term, attractive and fair price we think that's our proposition, and we think that proposition wins. Right, okay. Um, and just finally, uh, just in terms of yourself, you're eight and a half years with the bank, or thereabouts, uh, three and a half as CEO. Um, what's what's next for Bernard Bourne? How long, how long more would you like to be in this role? Do you want to do something else? Do you see yourself doing some other full-time uh, executive role afterwards? Uh, well, you know, I'm 50, um, and average tenures of CEOs tend not to bring you to your mid-65s at that sort of level. So I think there's certainly more left. Um, but sure, that'll be the subject of another podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> right. Well, um, they say, uh, the headhunters would say sort of five, six, seven years, or the academics even would say five, six, seven years is probably the optimum time for, for a, a CEO. Would you uh, concur? 
I, I, I don't know. I think there's there's all sorts of averages. I saw something in the um, FT there recently. It was covering the US market and uh, they were talking about average tenures and, and they move around a lot depending on different cycles and different sectors. Um, you know, banking has had its challenges. I'm probably the longest serving executive in banking in Ireland at this point in time. Um, you know, so the attrition rate has been pretty high. Um, I think the good news from, from AIB's point of view is we're in a pretty good place at this stage and I think we can do a lot of interesting things over the next while, but I'll wait and see. All right, Baron Byrne, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Bernard Byrne for joining me in studio. Jennifer Ryan produced the show. Don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Thank you.